So, what do you think of when I say the phrase, book burning? Yeah, what do you think? I mean, you, I mean, you think of some of the things about what happened like with... Uh, in the 17th century, uh, New England area with the witch burning. And they were also burning out literature that they felt was unfair. You also know that during the reign reign of the Nazis, that they would burn any literature that was anti-Nazi. So you know some of those things. But I wanted to do a um, kind of a search on the history of book burning. And so I typed that in, history of book burning, and the very first recorded book burning was guess where the book of jeremiah 605 bc and that's what we've been talking what we're talking about today so i mean there's always been a lot of books there's power in books right there's always been a lot of books that society or individuals have decided this just isn't right for everybody this isn't right for children or this isn't right for this and so there's always been these kind of controversial books let me offer a few and maybe they're controversial to to you maybe they're not How about this? Now, all of these were either burned or attempted to be burned or they've been torched in the press, right? So here's some of them. The Origin of Human Species by Charles Darwin. Mein Kampf. Lady Chatterley's Lover. Tropic of Capricorn. Tropic of Cancer. I can say with assurance that On the campus of Greenfield Junior High School in 1962, that book was circulating. So I won't say any more about that. I'll just say that much. How about this? This one's been torched by some people, some groups, many churches. Harry Potter. Or how about the Twilight series? Or how about... (laughs) Or how about this this jerk... I I shouldn't say that. Yes, I will. This jerk in Florida... A pastor who decided to burn the Koran. Okay, now what on earth good is that going to do except make people interested? You know, so we always have this idea that if I don't agree with something, the best way to deal with that is to burn the book. Let's go back to the very first book burning. Jeremiah chapter 36. Here are the words of God. It was the ninth, ninth month. And the king was sitting in the winter apartment. This was King Jehoiakim. Was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. It was a nice winter's eve. Uh, he had his, his uh, uh, servants and his you know, uh, people around him to kind of wait on him. King Jehoiakim, it was chilly outside. He had a nice fire going on in the inside. And then one of his servants, whenever Jehudai had read three or four columns of the scroll... The king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. What on earth was on these scrolls that made King Jehoiakim so terrified that he had to, strip by strip, burn them in the fire pot? I'll tell you what was on those two scrolls. One of them was a scroll that was found when Jerusalem was wiped out years before. And remember in the rubble, King Josiah found the scriptures, the scrolls of the ancient scriptures. And one of those books that Jeremiah particularly liked to tell the people of Israel about was the book of Deuteronomy. 
So one of the scrolls was the book of Deuteronomy. The other scroll that King Jehoiakim was trying to destroy was Jeremiah's own diary. In other words, the book that we have of Jeremiah was simply written on scrolls as Jeremiah was going through this whole process. So these two ancient holy books, the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Jeremiah, were systematically, Jehudai would read, Jehoiakim would say, I don't like that. That doesn't sound good to me. Snip, 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 throw it in the fire pot. Read a little bit more. Nope, don't like that either. Snip, 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 throw it in the fire pot. Kept doing that over and over and over again until it was gone. Why do we believe, and I think it's truthful for most of us, that books have so much power? The power to transform the power to change our mind, the power to change our heart. Books have this enormous uh, power to either change or enormous power to cause us to be all riled up with controversy, censorship. In a letter Franz Kafka wrote many years ago, as you would know, uh, he wrote these words. If the book we are reading does not wake us, as with a fist hammering on our skull, then why do we read it? A book must be like an ice axe to break the sea frozen inside us. I love that. Books have this power to reform. And sometimes we have to break the the looseness of our ideas and thoughts by reading other things. I love to read things that I don't agree with. I love to read atheists. And I love to read political things that I don't agree with because it stretches me and makes me think about how other people think. And kind of like that ice axe to kind of break up the things that have been maybe too firmly entrenched in my head for too long. The book of Jeremiah, along with the book of Deuteronomy, were read to King Jehoiakim. The book of Deuteronomy, as I mentioned, was discovered in the rubble of the temple. And it was kind of the handbook of Josiah, King Josiah's reform. Jeremiah grew up with this book, Deuteronomy. He pondered it and absorbed its message. He didn't read it as a scholar, you know, analyzing and explaining it. Nor did he read it as a reformer. How do these words of Deuteronomy speak to our society today? He didn't read it that way. Instead, he read this as a person who was addressed personally by God. Jeremiah believed that the book of Deuteronomy and all of the Old Testament scrolls that they found were a personal word to him. Now, we've done some teaching on this in the past, but uh, in the Bible, in the Greek language, there are a couple of words that are translated word, right? So one of the words that's translated word in the word is God's word, meaning this big idea, this grand God concept God's word, in other words, a thus saith the Lord. To all people, to all time, thus saith the Lord. That's God's word. But also there's another word that's very more specific, more laser focused. And that word, anybody remember that? Ramos, very good. That word is ramos. And that ramos is a specific, uh, Mona, a specific word to Mona Childress, drilled in on her heart and her soul. And where she says, oh, that was a word for me. That's what, that's what I needed to hear. Often I'll hear people, whether I preach or Pastor Brandon or someone else, after we'll hear people after church say, well, you, 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 you preached that sermon right to me. And of course, I don't want to tell them the bad news is that, no, I didn't even think of you last week, but, but the Holy Spirit did, right? And, and, and he got that word to you. And so that word is Ramos. And this is the way that Jeremiah 
handled the Word of God. The book influenced Jeremiah beyond words. And it was this influence, along with the Spirit of God, that moved Jeremiah to write these words. And what he wrote, Jeremiah wrote these 52 powerful, controversial chapters in the book of Jeremiah. He also wrote the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is a a cry out to the Lord because Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He was constantly crying for the people of Israel. Please come back to God. Please come back and understand how much God loves you and how much he wants to forgive you. Please come back to the truth. So that was the crying prophet and the Lamentations. But this book that Jeremiah wrote was almost destroyed. God's enemies tried to burn the Bible literally. During the days when Jehoiakim reigned in Judah, all of Jeremiah's prophecies were written on a scroll. They were taken to the king, and bit by bit, strip by strip, Jehoiakim threw them in the fire pot. pot. He used the word of God for kindling. In chapter 36, Jeremiah's entire book hangs in the balance. If Jehoiakim succeeds, there'll be no Jeremiah for future generations, no Deuteronomy, No warnings regarding spiritual adultery. No signposts at the crossroads, if you remember that message from a few weeks ago. No taunting the scarecrow in the melon patch. No visiting the potter's house. No promise of the new covenant. Everything Jeremiah prophesied would literally go up in smoke. Yet to this day, the church holds Jeremiah's prophecies as a sacred treasure. All of them. One reason the Scripture is known as the Word of God is because of its... The only way to say this is its miraculous preservation. Its miraculous preservation throughout the ages. One writer, one of the Puritan writers uh, by the name of Thomas Watson wrote these words in 1690. Listen, it's like you, you could write these words today. This was written about the preservation of the Bible in 1690. This is what he said. We may know the Scripture to be the Word of God by its miraculous preservation in all ages. The Holy Scriptures are the richest jewel that Christ has left us. And the Church of God has so kept these public records of heaven that they have not been lost. The Word of God is never wanted for enemies to oppose it, and if possible, to extirpate it. But God has preserved this blessed book inviolable to this day. The devil and his agents have been blowing at Scripture's light, but could never blow it out. A clear sign that it was lighted from heaven. There have been literally thousands of attempts to destroy the Bible. Thousands of individuals and groups of people have tried to wipe the Bible off of the face of the earth. No other ancient book has the authenticity and historical preservation that we have in the Bible. Not even close. Now, let me give you a, especially for those of you who are maybe new to the um, church Jesus Bible thing. Um, let, me, let me ask you a question. How many of you have heard something like this? Well, the Bible is filled with contradictions. Or uh, the Bible uh, isn't consistent. It says one thing and then it says another thing over here. Uh, the Bible is filled with an angry God. And you hear all of these different things. And most of those things that you've heard have not been personal discovery, right? Most of them you've heard from somebody else. Maybe it was a biology teacher in your sophomore year of high school or something else. But you've heard these all the years. And in some ways, you have believed them. 
You've kind of swallowed them and said, yeah, the Bible's not really an accurate book. It's just a book of myths. And, and all the, Here's my challenge. I challenge you to open this book for yourself. If you don't have one, I've got, I'll give you one. We've got free Bibles. Open this book for yourself and discover where the contradictions are. Discover where the inconsistencies are. You bring them back to me and I will listen to you. I'll just give you my rapt attention. I will listen because I want to know. Because I've read this Bible many, many times. I've studied this Bible all my life. And I have not found any of those contradictions that other critics talk about. So, just a challenge. Don't listen to what somebody else says. Don't even listen to what I have to say about the Bible. Discover for yourself. So that's a challenge for all of us. So Jeremiah 36 is about... This is really neat. Jeremiah 36 is about the, the writing, the receiving, the rejecting, and the preserving of the Bible and the implications that we have for today. So let's look at those four things. First of all, the writing. The Word of God passed from the mind of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that the word in Genesis that uh, God breathed life into Adam and Eve, that same word was used by, P- by Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that says that the Word of God, was God, the, word of God the Bible was God-breathed. So that same breath of God in Adam and Eve is the same breath of God in this book. That's what makes this different than Shakespeare or Chaucer or any other great literature. Uh, All other literature can be really good, but this is the only one that is breathed with God's breath himself. So this word, uh, the writing of it, came as God breathed the message into Jeremiah. As God breathed the message into Moses. As God breathed the message into Daniel or Peter or Paul or John or Luke in the New Testament, the word of God came to these men, the spirit of God spoke to them, and then they wrote God's message with their own hand, with their own personality. With their own, uh, with their own way of writing, right? So the Spirit of God gave them the message and they wrote it down. This is what happened with Jeremiah. Listen to chapter 36 again, verses 1 and 2. In the fourth year of, Je- of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Now, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This wasn't Jeremiah's idea. He didn't just make up something. Here's what he said. Take a scroll... And write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel and Judah. So, Jeremiah, I'm going to give you this inspiration. Take a scroll and start writing down all that I've told you about Israel and Judah. And all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah until now. In other words, the last 20 years, Jeremiah, I'm going to tell you all of these things again. And I want you to write them down. So this transcription took place in 605 B.C., over 2,600 years ago. The year the Babylonians won a a momentous military victory over the Egyptians. God tells Jeremiah, write down the first 20 years of your ministry. Now, the words that Jeremiah wrote down were not his words. They were God's words. Although the book reflects the personality and experiences of the man Jeremiah or Peter or Paul, its ultimate author is the Holy Spirit. When the writer to the Hebrews quoted from the book of Jeremiah, this is what he wrote. He wrote, the Holy Spirit also testifies. Okay? And then, in the same way, um, Peter wrote about biblical prophecy. Now, Peter was the guy who was one of Jesus' disciples. He was the guy that denied Jesus. And the guy that Jesus welcomed back into the disciples after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And this week, 
pitiful, scared man turned into one of the, became one of the most dynamic believers, Christ followers that we have ever known. Peter wrote these words and he was referring back to Jeremiah and other prophets. This is what he said. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. In other words, this didn't just didn't come from Jeremiah. This didn't just come from Isaiah or Zechariah or one of the other guys, right? For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Like a breeze, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Word of God is the Word of God. The words in Jeremiah's book are not words about God. They are words from God, which is why they never lose their power. These words mattered to God because he desired more than anything for his people, the people of Israel, to come back to their faith, to come back to God, to be forgiven and redeemed and to live a life that God had called them to. And that same word is available to us today, that God wants us to hear the truth of this word that calls us back to redemption, calls us back to love and forgiveness and grace. God doesn't want us to be out there wandering on our own. He says, come back to me. I love you. Come home. Come home to Christ. Come home to the church. Come home to my love. Just come back to me. That's the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we remember from these words, Jeremiah 36, 7, we hear these words. Perhaps they will bring their petition before the Lord and each will turn from his wicked ways. For the anger and wrath pronounced against the people by the Lord are great. See, the whole purpose of them picking up this book of Deuteronomy, this book of Jeremiah, hearing the truth, is so that they will come back. They'll avoid the catastrophe of them doing their own thing and come back to a loving and gracious God. So all of God's threatenings have the gracious purpose of turning God's beloved away from their sins. All of them. I mean, most of you know what I mean. Uh, Either your parents or... um, you have nieces or nephews. We've all been around little kids. And, you know, you tell a child, don't touch the stove. Now, when you tell a child, don't touch the stove, you don't say, now, honey, you know, some parents these days, they don't want to say no to their kids. Yeah, right. You know, some parents say, well, I'm never going to raise my voice at my child. I'm never going to. Well, come on, get a break. You know, it's not going to happen. You know, I know you want to be the perfect parent. It's just not. Gonna... I mean, God was the perfect parent. and Look what happened, happened to Adam and Eve. So, you know, tra- get off that train. So do the best you can, right? And so, so what you do, you tell your child, you know, don't touch the stove. If they go near the stove, you don't say, honey, let's reason about it. They say, don't touch the stove. Right? You don't want, that's, that's Jeremiah, right? Parents sometimes are like Jeremiah. Your child, even though you want that child to be perfect and never do anything wrong, sometimes your two-year-old is going to step out into a busy street. And you're not going to say, now, honey, let's reason together. I really want you to understand and listen to mommy because, you know, you're not going to, you're going to stop. Don't take another step. And you grab them by the scruff of their neck and you pull them back and they're sad and they're crying. Mommy, you were mean to me. You yelled at me. Well, yeah. And that's what Jeremiah is doing. Jeremiah is saying, stop. You're going the wrong way. That way is destruction. It's going to hurt you. And we constantly know this and read this in God's Word, and yet we, sin, we ignore it. God says, no, don't go this way. Go this way. This is the way of peace, the way of truth, and the way of, of, of real life. Go this way. 
God's always trying to turn us back from our sins, back to his heart. Jeremiah's heart is so full of love for his people and he's so broken. So Baruch has dictated God's message. And he stands before the people of God and he says, okay, here's the message that God wanted me to say to you. This is the message from Jeremiah and the message from Deuteronomy, the ancient scrolls. And so Baruch is up there and all of a sudden these people start throwing garbage at him, you know, rotten apples and tomatoes and say, we don't want to hear it. You're telling us that we're going the wrong way. We want to believe that we're going the right way because that's the way we've chosen and we're cool and we know what we're doing and you don't. Leave us alone, Jeremiah. We don't want to hear you. And so after that, Jehoiakim said, yeah, listen to the people. We don't want to hear all this stuff about how we're doing the wrong thing. So let's burn it. <laughs> let's chop it up and burn it. That was the writing of the word of God. It came by the inspiration, the pneuma, the Holy Spirit breathed life into Jeremiah. The writing of the word of God came from God's own heart. Next is the receiving of the word of God. It's not enough just to hear it. It's not enough just to write it and to hear it. We have to receive it. So Baruch was instructed to go to the temple and he read to the people. This is what he read. He did everything Jeremiah the prophet told him to do at the Lord's temple. He read the words of the Lord from the scroll. And then here comes the banana peels and the tomatoes and everything. And all of the people in the temple. Now, you've got to remember, uh, under Josiah, they had rebuilt the temple. So this bright, shiny, new, awesome temple. It's the most... It's high tech. They've got the lights and the sound system and they've got video screens and it's just the most awesome church anywhere. It's better than Cornerstone or any of the big churches. It's got all the bells and whistles and the children of Israel going into church and they're saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah said, no, you're just being religious. You're just saying words. But I know that your heart is far from God. And so when Baruch was reading these words and they were hearing them, they were saying, no, we're religious. We're religious. Leave us alone. We pray. We pray. We go to church. We go to church. He said, but no, no, your, 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 your heart is far from God. They're fasting and chanting and doing all kinds of religious things, but they did not receive the word of God except for one man, Micaiah. Micaiah, son of Gemariah, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll. Micaiah was one that heard the word and they said, you know, this isn't just a, a, a word. This isn't just a ritual. This isn't just a, a rubric or a rite. This is something more. This is a word from God for me, Micaiah said. This is a ramos for me. This is God speaking to me. So he received the word of God. And the Bible says that he listened attentively for God's word for him. How do you receive the Word of God? Do you just hear it and then forget it? Now, receiving the Word of God, and I'll just do this real quickly because it's kind of fun. Um, let, me, let me give you an example of getting a grip on the Bible, okay? Here's how you get a grip on the Bible. First of all, you need to hear it. So you're all here. You're listening. Uh, only a few of you are texting, and none of you are sleeping, as far as I can see. So we're good, okay? So you're hearing the Word of God. That's good. So you're hearing, you also hear, I listen to sermon tapes, you can listen to uh, Christian music, radio, hear sermons, you can hear the Word of God, okay, so that's good. But then you need to read it. Okay, that's when we have quiet time with God or devotions, we read the Gospel of John or something in the Bible that encourages us. So we need to hear it, then we need to read it, then we need to understand it. In our church, we provide adult classes on Sunday mornings, 
I think there's one going on right now. We have a couple going on in the first service. Uh, we have grow groups all over the uh, all over the area where you can go and study the Word of God. So it's more than hearing, more than reading. It's also understanding and studying. And then comes the part about memorizing. Okay, that's hard for most of us as adults. It's hard to memorize. When I was a kid, when I was seven years old in second grade, I memorized the book of Matthew in order to get a free Bible. And I already had seven Bibles. But I did that. When you're seven years old, you absorb so much. So you teach the children the word of God. So you hear, you read, you understand or study, you memorize, and then you embrace the word of God. In other words, what is the Ramos for me? What is this word for me? Dwayne Cross right now. What does this word say for me? How, how does this word encourage me or bless me or turn me away from sin or, or something else? How does this word work for me? So let me give you an example of this. So those five things, you need all five of those things. So here's how you get a grip on the Bible. Mona, come on up here. Give me a hand. She sits up front so she can do this stuff. So all five things you need. Okay. So that gives me a real grip on the Bible. Okay. Take that away from me. Yeah, it's not going to happen. You're not that strong. You need to, even with two hands, you couldn't do it. Now, if I let up one finger, I don't have quite the same grip. Okay? It's still pretty good. And then three fingers. Okay. Uh, uh, two fingers. I don't have a chance. Okay? So thank you, Mona. You did very good. I appreciate that. Yeah. We, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you wanted me to use you and embarrass you, sit up front. That's always important. Yeah. Hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, embracing. If you want the word, if you want to embrace the word of God, you need all five things. That's what Micaiah did. Now, here's another thing I want to mention about Micaiah. We know from the scripture that Micaiah had a father and a grandfather who were faithful to God and faithful in teaching the word of God to their son, Micaiah. So let me say this, uh, parents. Um, I remember um, my, my paternal grandfather, uh, Grandpa Cross, Walter Cross, um, he grew up in Southern Baptist Church in Illinois uh, back before the Depression. And my grandfather always loved the Bible. And I remember as a kid, um, him reading the Bible, uh, I remember profoundly my grandmother had a stroke when she was about in her late 70s. And for the next 10 years, she couldn't talk or probably understand, we don't know for sure, but she was in a facility for 10 years where she was alive and ate food, but she wasn't home. And every day, Grandpa would go and read to her the Bible. Every day, he would read to her. And it was just precious a time. Just He was reading to his sweetheart. You know, He didn't know how much she understood, but he loved the Bible. And then he passed it on to my father. And my father, I remember coming out of uh, getting ready for school when I was a little boy. My father would be sitting in his big chair before he went to work. And he had his big old uh, King James Version, uh, you know, uh, Thompson uh, Bible on his lap that weighed about 40 pounds. And, and he was reading his Bible. And as a kid, I'd come out and I'd see that. And, well, and I learned to love the Bible because of that. And I learned to pass on my love for the Bible to my son and my two sons and my daughter. And to this day, my son Nathan and my daughter Tammy are passing on the love of their Bible to their children and generation after generation. That's what happened to Micaiah. He had parents and grandparents that, that loved, told him about God and told him about the Word of God and said, this is what will make your life work. And so, so let me say it this way. Let me put it in a way that we can all understand. So I'll talk to the parents now. Okay, parents, just for a minute. Uh, or grandparents. I'm a grandparent, so... Uh, I already raised my kids, and somehow, by the grace of God, the kids turned out okay, so I, I'm going like that. Um, so, parents, I love it when you teach your kids how to play soccer. 
I think that's awesome. I taught my son how to uh, a long snap when he was eight years old. And when he was a freshman in high school, he was the long snapper for the varsity team because he was the only one that knew how to do it. I love it when you teach your kids how to play baseball. I love it when you take your kids to piano lessons or trumpet lessons. Uh, Friday night, I went to Maya Cisneros' uh, little uh, piano, uh, you know, recital, and she did a beautiful job. And she was the first one, and then I had to sit through 22 others, but that's another story. Uh, but I, so I love parents. I love it when you teach your kids how to play an instrument. I love it when you teach your kids to study hard in their school. And I want you to learn. I want your kids to learn math and science and be good readers and, and know history and be well-rounded. And I love it when you teach your kids to have good manners and respect adults. And I love it when you do all this. But please, please hear this. For the sake of the kingdom of God, teach your children the word of God. All that other stuff is good. Nothing wrong with it. But if you want your kids to succeed in life, if you want your kids to excel in life, if you want your kids to be life changers and transformers in this world, you teach them the Word of God. You let the Word of God dwell in them. And that's when they will turn their hearts towards Him and others will turn their hearts towards Him because of them. Teach them, but teach them the truth about God's love. Now, That's kind of off script, but that's in me. And parents and grandparents, we need to do a better job of this. It is not, you know, up to Pastor Barb to teach your kids the Bible. It's up to you to teach them at home. All we can do, we we get them for an hour. That's all we can do is supplement that, right? So it's up to you. You let the Word of God be in them. So we need to not only hear the Word of God that's written, we need to receive the Word of God. The next thing is we need, uh, in this story, is the rejecting of the Word of God. Now, Jehoiakim, the king, completely rejects God's Word through Jeremiah. In fact, he does more than ignore it. He tries to destroy it and to destroy Jeremiah. So Jeremiah and Baruch are in hiding because, uh, you know, they got, you know, banana peels and tomatoes thrown at them by all of the people. So they're in hiding. But listen to what it says in chapter 36. The king sent Jehudai to get the scroll. And Jehudai brought it from the room of Elishama, the secretary, and read it to the king and all the officials standing beside him. So here's King uh, yeah, Jehoiakim, and he's got his yes men around him and his servants and everybody that's on the payroll. And they're all sitting around and say, Jehoiakim, you're so wonderful and you know everything. And, and, and so all these people, all these yes men are around him. And then it was the ninth month and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. Whenever Jehudai had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. Talk about book burning. I mean, it's one thing to take a book that we hate or think is bad and throw it into a fire. That's one thing. It's another thing to piece by piece, line by line, paragraph by paragraph, say, I'm not buying it. This is not for me. Snip, snip, into the fire. Jehoiakim closes his eyes. He covers his ears and he sings la, 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 la. He says, I don't want to hear from Jeremiah. I don't like it. I'm the king. I don't want anybody telling me I'm on the wrong path. I don't want anybody telling me I'm going the wrong direction. I am the king and I am going to ignore this. One of my favorite theologians is J.I. Packer. 
And he once commented on this text. He said, Jehoiakim burns God's word, ignoring its warnings. And then he adds, that's like getting out of a car to destroy the bridge out sign done at one's own peril. The shocking thing is not so much that Jehoiakim is stupid, but it's his audacity. The king is casual, almost cavalier, nonchalant about his defiance of God's words. There are many sons and daughters of Jehoiakim today. Many sons and daughters of Jehoiakim who say, yeah, you know, this book, I'm not buying it. I don't know anything about it, but somebody told me once that it's filled with contradictions, so I'm not buying it. Plus, when I do open it up and I read something, it tells me that I should be going this way, yet I want to go that way. And even though my life's a wreck and I've messed everything up, I'm still going to go that way. People don't want to hear that. We have churchgoers all the time in our world that are casual and nonchalant about the Bible. Yeah, I'll hear Pastor Dwayne on Sunday, but... The rest of the week, I just let this puppy gather dust. You know, it's just sitting on my mantle. And it's like the uh, wife who was being visited by her pastor. And and they were talking about the Bible. And she said to her little boy, a little five-year-old, said, Son, go into mommy's bedroom and write on her bedstand, bring out the book that she loves the most. And, of course, he brought out the Cosmopolitan, right? So, so that's not good. You know, you be more specific when you're telling your kids to do something like that. But, but we, we say this is what we love and we say this is what we embrace and we say this is what we believe. But, friends, many people don't even know what it says. And if they do, they say, not for me. So I have a friend named Doug and Doug is a covenant pastor, but he also does consulting work or interim pastor work. Uh, in churches where they've had a split or they've had a, a, a terrible thing happen in their church. In this one large uh, Southern California church, uh, they'd had a split and about 500 people left the church and there were still people in the church that were angry at each other because the pastor had been fired, some wanted him fired, others didn't. And there was rancor and angry emails and people standing up and yelling in business meetings and all kinds of terrible things. And this church was a mess and there was this roiling anger and hatred and all of this stuff. And the motto of their church, this is one, the motto of their church is built on the Word of God. It's the motto of their church, built on the Word of God. So Doug comes, he interviews all the elders, he talks to church members to try to get a feel, he's supposed to help. And of course, what the church wants is for him to take a side. You know, tell us that we're right. And this group said, no, no, tell us that we're right. And so they want him to take sides and determine who's right and who's wrong. And so Doug gets up on the first Sunday after he interviews everybody, and he buys a a Bible, he has a a small uh, Bible that he bought himself at a Bible bookstore. And he comes up there and he starts going through and he goes over to uh, uh, the first passage in Colossians 3.13. And he says, Colossians 3.13 says that um, you are to um, uh, forgive each other in the same way that Christ has forgiven you. And he looks out at the congregation. And they're all sitting there, you know, shaking. Yeah, that's what God's word says. And we're built on the word of God. You know, he says, in this church, and he takes it, he rips the page out. 
Now, those of us who grew up fundamentalists go, be still my heart. It's just paper. Come on. Don't be silly. You know, it's just a piece of paper. But he rips it out and he throws it down. And the people are going, oh, no. You know, you know, this is this is what we believe. And they said, OK, let's try Matthew 544. OK, love your enemies. Doesn't work for you. Rips it out. Throws it down. And then he goes to First John 5. Show your love of God by how you love each other. Nope, that's not good. He rips it and he keeps doing that over and over again. The church was so angry at him. But you know what? That changed everything. That church was revitalized. They repented. They returned to their faith. They returned to their motto built on the word of God because it wasn't just words anymore. Too many times it's just words. Okay. Okay. I hear that. I can tell you what the Bible says. It's just words. It has to get in you. It has to be part of you. And that's what Jeremiah never stayed around, excuse me, Jehoiakim never stayed around long enough to understand God's love for him. The writing, the receiving, and the rejecting of God's word. And finally, the presenting, excuse me, the preserving of God's word. There have been thousands of attempts, people trying to destroy the Bible. Listen to Jeremiah 36 again. After the king burned the scroll containing the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll. <laughs> now, Jehoiakim's just finished burning. He's, the smoke's still in the air, you know. And the Lord says to Jeremiah, okay, take up your pen and pencil, you know, your piece of paper, your, your, your notepad, you know, your diary. Let's start writing. Let, let me tell you again what I told you before. Take another scroll and write on it all the words that were on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, burned up. So Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to the scribe Baruch, son of Neriah. And as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote on it all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) John McCain, when he was imprisoned in Vietnam, said that, um, of course, they were not allowed to read anything or have any books or anything like that. But he said the prisoners, they could hear each other if they talked loud enough. He said they would quote scripture. And they were probably all from different backgrounds, whether it's Methodist, Catholic, Presbyterian, whatever. But they would, whatever scripture they knew, if it was the Psalm 23 or, or John 3 or, you know, whatever it was, and they would quote that and people would hear it. And then somebody else would quote another scripture and then another. And this is how they kept alive during the days when they're in this terrible situation during the Vietnam War. John McCain said, I, he said, if we could have gotten all these guys together, I'll bet we could have put the entire New Testament back, back in place. So Jeremiah did. You can destroy this book. You can tear the pages out of it. You can throw it in a fire pot. And the word of God will not be destroyed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Probably the most wicked Roman Empire, excuse, excuse me, emperor, was Diocletian in the second century. He was frustrated that every time he killed a Christian, three more would pop up. But he was, he was even more disgusted the fact that every time they found a copy, a scroll of the Old Testament or any of the writings of Paul and the New Testament writings, every time they would find this, they would burn it. And every, every time they did, more would pop up somewhere else. This is, what, this is what Diocletian said in the second century. Quote, we might as well put our shoulder to the burning wheel of the sun and try to stop it in its flaming course as attempt to stop the circulation of the Bible. Diocletian said, 
I give up, man. <laughs> We've tried everything. We kill all these people. We burn all their books and they just keep popping up all over the place. Voltaire, that very famous 18th century French infidel, and he lived in the seven, late 1700s. Um, he said that by 1850, Christianity would be gone. It would be gone. Okay, Voltaire said that. Instead, Voltaire was gone in 1778. <laughs> now, the, the irony of anyone trying to stop the Bible is almost humorous. And there, I've got dozens of these stories. Voltaire's private printing press that used to print out all the anti-Christian stuff after his death, guess what? Was used to print Bibles, of course. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. The Bible stands the test of time, whether it's archaeology or history. But most importantly, the Bible is life-changing. Last Sunday at our Easter service, we had over 30 people that raised their hands to say yes to God. They said, yes, I I receive Christ as my Lord and my Savior. The Word of God is life-changing. You might ask the question very realistically this. Well, how is it life-changing? Well, can I say this in all honesty? It depends on what you do with it. If it sits on the bookshelf and is read occasionally, it will have no impact on your life whatsoever. But you take it seriously. You read and study and meditate and embrace. And brothers and sisters in Christ, it will change your life. I've seen this book's wisdom turn marriages around. I've seen this book's wisdom keep people from financial ruin. I've seen this book's wisdom show people how they can be spared from an eternity apart from God and embracing new life. I've seen this book transform thousands of lives in my life. On the other hand, as a pastor over 30 years, I've seen a lot of human wreckage, a lot of people who made wrong decisions, a lot of people that said, I'm going that way. I don't care what the Bible or God or anybody else says. I'm going that way. And can I say this? And I'll say this with all complete sincerity and honesty. Every time a person's life is wrecked because of their decision to go that way, every single time, it's because they violated the clear teachings of this book. Every time. No exception. Is the Bible life-changing? It all depends on what you do with it. The Bible tells it to us straight. It tells us why our world and our lives so messed up and points us to God's solution. And God's solution is always the same. Jesus Christ. Scripture can be burned. God's Word can be cut up in little pieces. It can be destroyed, but it will never be destroyed. It can be ignored. It can be poo-pooed. It can be laughed at. It can be cursed, but it will never go away. So as we close, I just want to, I love to play games like this. My wife doesn't like to so much, but you might. So maybe we'll get together and talk. Uh, So here's the kind of games I like to play. If you were shipwrecked on a desert island, what single book would you most like to have? Now to avoid some of you seeming to be overly pious, which some of you may think you are, you cannot say the Bible. Okay, so if you can't say the Bible, if you were shipwrecked on a desert island, what single book would you most like to have? Any thoughts? (laughs) How about this? Butler's Practical Guide to Boat Building. Okay, 
there's the book that you want in that case. Well, the book that Jeremiah read, Deuteronomy, and the book that he wrote, Jeremiah, are both boat-building kinds of books. They're about survival. And they're about getting back home. They're about getting back on the path. Getting back on the trail. Getting back on a, a, a direction where, where we are facing God and we are walking toward Him. These books are given to us, indestructible, along with 64 other books to give light and guidance and salvation to shipwrecked people like you and like me. Would you join me in prayer?